What's up guys, my name is Christian, and me and Elijah are going to be breaking down for you guys a little bit more history in our last episode of our history mini-series on the resolution. We're sorry we've taken so long with this, but uh, we hope you guys enjoy it, and uh, stay tuned for a quick word from our sponsor. Okay, guys, this is going to be another episode of our history series. Last time we looked at Glass-Steagall and the Federal Reserve, and tonight we examined the history of the gold standard, a case that is very relevant this year, and the massive piece of legislation that we call Dodd-Frank, which is also super relevant this year. After the first episode, we have had to break up the 20th century stuff into specific issues. There's just so much history here, guys so bear with us. But first, let's start with the history of the gold standard. And before we jump right into that, just a quick public service announcement, a little bit of housekeeping here. We're both recording on phones that it seems don't have headphone jacks uh, at, at the moment, and we don't have all the adapters and all that stuff taken care of yet. So forgive us if we have any background noise or speaker stuff. It's just, we're just going with it at this point, guys. So Elijah, take it away. Okay, thanks for the intro, Christian. Guys, basically, a gold standard is a standard in which it's where the paper money, like a a dollar bill, is represented by gold. Rather, the paper represents the gold. This means that a certain amount of dollars is fixed to a certain amount of gold. Um, In the same way, a British pound sterling, it used to be literally the paper equivalent of a pound of sterling silver. That's not this, that's not, uh, that's not how it is now, but you can see how the name fits in. So if I went to the bank and um, they didn't do this throughout all history, only certain banks in a lo- the largest part of American history could trade it for gold, but you'd take your $10 and they'd give you $10 worth of gold. So really you were just walking around with $10 of gold. Um, because of currency, yeah. Um, Gold has a long and rich history. Uh, people have fought, killed, worshipped, and worked to get gold for millennia. But because we Americans are a narcissistic bunch, we're going to start with the U.S. history. Um, from 1789 to 1862, the U.S. operated on a bimetal, bi- bimetallic standard. Bimetal- bimetallic. Yeah. Um, Two-metal two standard meaning it used both gold and silver as a standard. There are a few problems, however, with a bimetallic standard. Uh, They put into place Gresham's Law and Deere's Law. These are two economic laws that aren't going to go, that I don't want to go into detail. If you want to know, you should take an Econ 201 class. But basically, um, when they legislate the prices for each of these golds and how they it causes problems with the real exchange rate because maybe they say that the silver to gold is 10 to 1 but then people the market changes and people don't like silver as much so it's really it's 11 to 1 and that causes problems with how they're exchanging it because according to law you have to exchange it to this and so on it's 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 the same problem you have with price controls the price of one metal would bid up or bid down the value of the other if they're conjoined by law incorrectly. Originally, the law stated in 1792 that silver and gold had a trading ratio of 15 to 1. 
respectively. This was the correct ratio for its time. When the value of silver declined, that ratio was incorrect and people used pretty much only silver because although it was worthless, it was incorrectly pegged to a certain amount of gold. This is, this is an example of Gresham's Law. Basically, the reverse happened with the Coinage Act of 1834. The ratio of silver to gold was increased too much. People then switched to a de facto gold standard because silver was so undervalued by law, there's no point in using it. Except for a short stint of using fiat money, fiat money during the Civil War, which led to massive inflation. Uh, from that point on until World War I, the U.S. used gold almost exclusively. In 1879, the U.S. adopts a gold standard for $20.67 an ounce, with bills being exchangeable for gold reserves. In 1900, with the passage of the Gold Standard Act, the gold dollar is made official and completely moves away from the bimetallism of the past. This period until the 1930s is generally considered economically stable. Keyword, until. Until the 1930s. Um, in 1913, when the Federal Reserve is established, it begins to mess with the currency. The Fed starts issuing notes that are only 40% backed by gold. The other 60% is fiat currency. The change to a fiat currency allows the Fed to have more influence on the monetary system. Now, once the Great Depression hit with the stock market of, 18, of 1929, times were getting bad. As part of his many stimulus programs, uh, many of which were outright failures, President FDR um, ended the gold standard do domestically. He said in a speech to Congress that, quote, the free circulation of gold coins is un unnecessary. It is essential only for the payment of international trade balances. And that's what happened. Domestic use of the exchangeability of gold ended with the Gold Reserve Act of 1934. This act mandated for everyone to bring their gold and exchange it to the Fed for $20.67 an ounce, or pay a fine of $10,000 and or jail time. The point of doing this was to give the Fed more control over the monetary and financial system. Now we jump forward 10 years and we have the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, where the US and representatives from 43 other countries met in New Hampshire to brainstorm over the post-World War II financial system. The conference, the conference ended with each country pe pegging their currencies to a fixed rate in exchange to the dollar, which itself was pegged to $35 an ounce. This created a golden backbone to the international financial system. Americans could still not, however, hold gold themselves. Gold's only purpose was as a reserve currency for the international monetary system. It was not until 1974 that Americans could, old, could own gold domestically again. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> After running deficits to pay for the Vietnam War and numerous social programs, the United States government was in a fix. Four nations began cashing their dollars in for gold, and Britain asked to be paid back on debts with gold. Faced with mounting debts and decreased trust in the dollar, Nixon ended the gold standard in 1971 by cutting off any convertibility to gold. This put the dollar, and by extension the rest of the world, in the current fiat system. Something interesting to note is that whenever the government had debts or wanted to pay for something it couldn't afford, then it would stop working with the gold standard. This happened both with FDR in the 30s and Nixon in the 70s. Now, um, that's pretty much what I compiled. 
I built standard, uh, standard onto you, Christian, with what I see as a very lengthy passage on Dodd-Frank. Sure thing. Um, everybody listening to this, I'm sure y'all can tell this is really a one-take thing. We're not, we're not getting super thorough here with editing. But um, before we start with Dodd-Frank, I'm curious, Elijah, because I think we probably in real life disagree on this a little bit so I'm, I'm just curious to hear your perspective um how do you feel about the idea of bringing back the gold standard as a policy move as a policy move Ma- mainly from a debate perspective to be fair because obviously there is evidence on both sides mm-hmm. um, but from that perspective when you look at it as a debater how do you feel about it i think that gold is freaking awesome um and i like there's so many advantages to having gold. Uh, the biggest one I think would be the government can't mess with the monetary system, which I like very much, but well, directly that is, but I'm not sure it's, I think that if it could happen, it would be a good option, but I just don't think that it could because um, from the estimates I saw, we don't have enough literal gold to back um, the dollars we have in the economy at the current rate if we did transition to a gold standard then gold per ounce would shoot up like two or three times than what it is now so and gold is a fixed um there's a fixed supply of gold in the world so it's long term but it's not like long term as it's not it won't last forever so yeah pretty much it's it's just can we get would it work and if we tried to it'd probably mess up the entire uh, metal market really badly i think because it would be government setting certain dollars it would i think it would rapidly inflate the dollar because they'd have to set so much dollars to so so little gold so the price, so the value of the dollar would have to plummet. That's how I see it anyway. But so interesting. It, so it sounds like you kind of want it, but you also admit that it kind of wouldn't work at the same time. So awesome in theory, but not good in practicality. That's how I see it. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, cool. Well, jumping on to Dodd-Frank a little bit, because um, we want to not keep this too long. Um, the Dodd-Frank is a little bit lengthy, so we have a lot to break down here. Moving on to the second half of tonight's episode, Dodd-Frank was a very significant piece of legislation that was signed into law in 2010 by President Obama. The law was officially called the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. However, it's gone down in history as Dodd-Frank in honor of two politicians, Senator Dodd and Representative Frank who put forward the legislation in Congress. Uh, Dodd-Frank's significance comes from the timing of when it was passed, coming into place uh, following the Great Recession of 2008. Dodd-Frank was essentially an attempt by the government to prevent the likelihood of another recession happening ever again. As is the case with all things done by the government, however, Dodd-Frank was both extremely controversial and incredibly imperfect, with it negatively affecting some of the banks that it theoretically should have helped. Now, Dodd-Frank is way too big for us to fully break down and analyze here, 
The bill itself is, I believe, around 800 pages, and the regulations that have come out of it are thousands of pages. So with that little disclaimer out of the way, we're going to do our best to break down what we know about Dodd-Frank to date. Before we get enmeshed in the details of Dodd-Frank, it is important, however, to understand that the two different sorts of perspectives you'll encounter on the Dodd-Frank issue. On the conservative Republican or libertarian sides of the aisle, you will see people arguing for economic growth and taking the stance that Dodd-Frank is overly restrictive on free markets and business transactions. And that isn't such an impossible case to argue, right? I mean, on a rhetorical level, it seems very compelling to voters that hundreds of thousands of pages of regulations and laws are are probably a bit too complicated, and they're probably wasting everybody's time and money somewhere, somehow. On the other hand, you may see the more liberal Democrat side of the aisle arguing that either Dodd-Frank is a necessary evil, or even arguing that Dodd-Frank doesn't go far enough in terms of protecting consumers from risky business behavior. And when you look at it from the perspective that people who passed it and were advocating for it were coming from. I mean, they were just coming out of a recession. The banks had just crashed. The financial market was unstable. People thought it was super stable beforehand. And then all of a sudden it just, the bottom fell out basically. Um, or at least that was the perspective that a lot of Americans had. There were some people who were predicting it before it happened, but there was a lot of mistrust in the market and in the businesses, especially after some businesses had sort of fudged the books on their accounting that made it easier to get by longer until they didn't essentially so all this is to say that the thing you're least uh the thing that you're least likely to see in the literature however is someone arguing that dodd frank is a flawless beast in fact both sides of the political spectrum seem to accept that in uh in 2019 that while it might have been necessary or useful at the time it has had negative consequences so that's why I'm predicting now that the vast majority of cases, or successful cases at least, and I'll get back to what this is all tying into, the vast majority of cases dealing with Dodd-Frank will not completely repeal it, but instead they'll try to do one of three things. Option one, cases will try to shrink or mitigate problems with Dodd-Frank. Option two, cases will expand Dodd-Frank to be more regulatory, which I kind of find doubtful in SOA. Or option three, cases will simultaneously change requirements on small banks, which is where most of Dodd-Frank's problems lie, or most of the problems that everyone agrees on lie, and expand restrictions on large banks. <clears throat> okay, and all that is to say, by the way, that there's going to be lots of different views, none of which are 100%, you know, totally sacrosanct on the issue of Dodd-Frank, because it is, like I said, hundreds of pages. It's very complicated. So people are going to have some nuanced perspectives on this and that shouldn't be a shock to anyone coming into this that people could be arguing all in every direction dealing with this and what we should do with it because it is not a settled issue okay so when we talk about these large regulations hundreds of pages thousands of pages what are they well buckle in because i'm about to run through a long list of bullet points brought to you guys from history.com so under dodd frank Banks are required to come up with plans for a quick shutdown if they approach bankruptcy or run out of money. Seems simple enough, right? Financial institutions must also increase the amount of reserve money they hold under Dodd-Frank. So basically the reserve ratio was increased. It reduces the risk of 
a run on the bank. Uh, additionally, every bank with more than $50 billion in assets, so that's sort of the government's way of drawing a line in the sand to determine or, or differentiate big banks from small banks. Banks with more than $50 billion in assets have to take an annual stress test given by the Federal Reserve, which can help determine if the institution could survive a financial crisis. As a quick aside on that, um, lots of people have criticized these stress tests and said it uh, is not reliable at all as an indicator for whether or not banks could survive. But, you know, that's that's just a free nugget for you guys. Um, also, under Dodd-Frank, there were some agencies that were created, and these are going to have their own probably cases and controversies throughout the season, but really quick, some of them. So there's the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC, which identifies risks that I uh, that affects the financial industry and keeps large banks in check, quote unquote, uh, according to history.com. There's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, that was basically created, I believe, by Elizabeth Warren. She was really influential in the establishment of that. Uh, yeah, I keep seeing Warren's name pop up in all these like banking, um, banking legislation. And I just think her... Yeah, it's really interesting right now since she's running for president. Um, seeing her name pop up all over this legislation that we're debating that is from about, well, 10 years ago now. It's really, I don't know, there's just something interesting about that. But for those of whom don't know, um, Elizabeth Warren, um, you, you may not be a fan of her politically. I'm, I'm not a fan of her politically. Uh, this doesn't really have much to do with that. This is just as a matter of policy since it's relevant to what we're debating. Um, she sort of came into the political scene um, from the approach of uh, going after the big banks, basically, after they crashed and after a lot of people lost money with them. Um, she was a Harvard law professor, I think, dealing with auditing or something, so like business law. And uh, I believe that's her background. And so she was very influential. The Obama administration, I think, sort of pulled her in. I don't know all the details of that, but she had a big say in writing some of the regulations that created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, and those of whom like the CFPB and think it's good, usually on the Democratic side of the aisle, sometimes we'll talk about how good it is and maybe how it could be improved, but generally how good it is. And basically, those who don't like it typically say the CFPB is awful, it doesn't really do anything, it goes after the wrong people, all that. So the idea may be good, to go after, uh, to, to work with bank regulators and stop risky loans and bad practices. And uh, it, it also oversees some other things like credit, credit and debit uh, agencies for whatever reason, as well as payday and consumer loans. Um, the implementation of that's very controversial. Last thing, the Office of Credit Ratings ensures that agencies provide reliable credit ratings um, again, that's a bullet point, so I don't, I don't know the details with that, but that's something possibly worth looking into. Oh, I'm pretty sure I understand why that's a thing. So, like, um, when we had the 2008 crisis, there was an overconfidence in the mortgage, the housing loans and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, the reasons as to that overconfidence were because the federal government was insuring and the Justice Department was... The federal government was insuring those loans and the Justice Department was um, pressuring businesses to take loans from minority and high-risk communities. Well, I mean, high-risk communities from minority communities, which happen to be often high-risk. Now, 
the problem with that is that if the government insures it and says you have 100% satisfaction guarantee big banks then all the big banks are going to be like okay we got 100% satisfaction guarantee but when Lehman Brothers calls the Federal Reserve and says hey we need a helping hand man man and they say oh we're out of money where is that 100% satisfaction guarantee it's gone but the way it's been viewed is that all these credit rating agencies and the banks fudged up their own um, ratings which right. ratings were correct for the time because somebody else was making the guarantee interesting cool um yeah so there's there's lots of stuff there um hopefully you guys are getting a little tidbits out of this and at least hopefully hopefully this is interesting stuff i know this is really really complicated stuff i know putting together stuff on dodd frank is like so boring so i hope you guys are a little bit more entertained by this than i was whenever i was making this content but all that said there's still a little bit more to talk about with dodd frank believe it or not so a few other things really quickly that are under dodd frank uh one of the things that is really um sort of touted as one of the good things that came out of dodd frank i don't know that there's going to be cases about this but it's interesting nonetheless is a whistleblowing provision which actually encourages anyone with information uh, about violations so if someone works at wells fargo and they see that um like there was that recent scandal a few years ago where wells fargo was creating false accounts for people um if someone inside wells fargo like a lower level employee saw that their managers were forcing or pressuring people to do that then they could file a whistleblower complaint anonymously based or not exactly anonymously but it would be kept confidential at least for the short term they'd be protected Uh, legally by the government too so exactly exactly um with the cfpb and i think it was with the cfpb it could have been another sort of sub agency but I'm, i'm pretty sure it was the cfpb and then at the end of all of it since basically if you do a whistleblower complaint against one of these big financial firms where privacy is really a big deal and where sometimes if they make mistakes it's the whole idea of you keeping your job there is that you don't rat out the mistakes um you know potentially i'm just speculating here but it seems to me like it would be it could devastate your career if you whistleblow against a company that's doing something illegal or scandalous um and then that company takes a hit for it uh you become like radioactive to businesses in that same industry they may never want to hire you because they may fear that you're going to call them out on whistleblower stuff maybe i don't know but that's that's my speculation but um the under the whistleblower rule when the settlement is reached after you're protected and everything and the people who end up presumably there'd be a class action lawsuit like in the wells fargo case and once the bank pays out money to the people affected the whistleblower gets like 10% of that settlement which doesn't sound like a lot until you think about the fact that these settlements are sometimes in the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars and so basically if you're a whistleblower and you report on one of these companies you are set for life afterwards um there's a huge financial incentive to report um violations by these companies when um dealing in the financial industry with people's money so um i i don't know if that's going to be a case necessarily but i just thought that was really interesting and y'all would uh find that fascinating so one more thing and that is the volcker rule 
Um, the Volcker Rule is federal regulation that generally prohibits banks from conducting certain investment activities with their own accounts and limits their dealings with hedge funds and private equity funds, also called covered funds. Now, I don't know about all of our audience, but hedge funds and private equity funds are still new concepts to me. So what you need to know for the moment is that hedge funds are sort of like large pools of investment, similar to mutual funds, but they're considered to be more risky because these types of funds can make big sell-offs or big buys of stock or something very quickly along those lines. So by limiting involvement in hedge funds and the like, the Volcker Rule's intent was basically to prevent banks from taking extreme risks with consumers' money to avoid that sort of high-risk, high-reward gambling that businesses sometimes do that, on one hand, could make their clients rich, and on the other hand, could down the whole company and the entire financial industry with it. While we're on the Volcker Rule, another thing that it pretty seriously impacts is banks' ability to invest in private equity. Like hedge funds, these investments have a higher potential risk and higher potential reward. Private equity is basically if I own a private business and I want to sell shares in that business, but I'm not publicly listed, those shares on the stock market, uh, selling those shares on the stock market uh, or, or something. This is kind of like if I own Chick-fil-A and I wanted to sell 10% of my holdings in the company, I could do that by selling private equity in Chick-fil-A. So in other words, the Volcker rule limits banks and hedge funds and things like this from taking a big pool of money from all their savings accounts and then sticking that in private equity like in Chick-fil-A or something um, because there's just less checks there to make sure that the money's diversified and protected in case something happens to Chick-fil-A. Investopedia explains the idea behind private equity by writing, quote, a source of investment capital, private equity actually derives from high net worth individuals and firms that purchase shares of private companies or acquire control of public companies with plans to take them private, eventually become uh, delisting them from public stock exchanges. Most of the private equity industry is made up of large institutional investors, such as pension funds and large private equity firms funded by a group of accredited investors, end quote. So in other words, private equity is usually a high-stake investment in a private business that could lead to lots of profit, uh, lots of profit, especially in the case of businesses that aren't doing well, which is why they're getting acquired, uh, or a massive loss. All this is simply to explain the implications of the Volcker Rule on large banks. And I know this probably is not the easiest information to digest. So I hope that by breaking it up into some pieces and discussing it we can learn and grow together on this topic um elijah if you want to do just sort of a little summary and just sort of go back over really quickly all that we talked about um i'm sorry i lost you at private equity or something but no you're good um you talked about the gold standard it's history leading up to now. Uh, my basic takeaway was people mess with, historically, politicians messed with the gold standard when it wasn't convenient for them. For you, you tried to um, go a little bit into the Dodd-Frank Act, which is incredibly complex and incredibly boring in many parts. Um, now, if you guys do want to find something interesting, you can delve into the 800 pages of Dodd-Frank and look for weird stuff 
like I think there's something about that regulates dealings with um, like mineral miners in the Congo for some reason in Dodd-Frank which is a banking piece of legislation um, basically Dodd-Frank was used because it was so big they used it to piggyback some other stuff they wanted um, that be, they, the they being the politicians. There's just a lot of little juicy tidbits in there. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm not sure if we're gonna do this history thing again because it takes forever to write. And yeah, I don't, I don't think we are. I think we're just gonna go back to the traditional format probably after this. Yeah. But um, hope you guys enjoyed it. It's been fun for me at least. Yeah, same here. Um. One uh, other tidbit on Dodd-Frank. Um, this is a personal thing, but I would encourage you guys to do this as well, just because I know, personally, I absolutely despise Dodd-Frank. Um, not, like, the bill itself, but, like, cases dealing with the bill in debate, just because Dodd-Frank is so complicated, and it's so boring. Um, <laughs> I'm going to urge you guys, just as a as a personal suggestion, you don't have to do this, Um Consider, if you go negative against any case, if you're in STOA, definitely do this. If you're in CC of SE, get creative about how you do it, but still find a way to do it. Basically run a critique against the affirmative team. If they run like repealing or reforming Dodd-Frank, basically run a critique that is too vague and it's too complicated and there's no way to effectively debate it in the debate round. I would just really appreciate it if you do that. I, I-, I would love to see that happen every single round where there's a Dodd-Frank case and I would love to see people just pull up all the weird topicality stuff like child mining regulations in the Congo or whatever inside Dodd-Frank just to point out that this bill is so so big and the regulations are so massive that it doesn't matter like how smart or prepared you are for the most part 90% of people do not understand what's inside Dodd-Frank and or the 90% let, let, let's just let's just leave Dodd-Frank it's one of those situations where the senators don't even read the bill because they can't be bothered. Wait, you mean that's not all the bills? What? You mean you mean they actually read some of their bills? Oh, I'm sure the page uh, <laughs> bill get um, proposed by Ocasio Cortez on the Green New Deal just for kicks, but that's short. I'm sure that's another episode though down the line. We we can talk about that another time. <laughs> all right, guys, it's been fun. Hope you enjoyed it. Um. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Oh, also, uh, in the future, we should hopefully be having some guests on at some point. Um, not sure exactly the date or time. It's not confirmed yet. But hopefully, the man, the myth, the legend, Kobe Ledford, might be coming on our show. So stay tuned for that. And uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Kobe. Kobe.